Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Wife Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports and embraces the women behind the military men by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. Welcome, Kiri, to the Military Wife Life Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So you and your husband have been together for 10 years. Can you tell us how you guys met? Luke and I met in primary school. Then we went separate ways with high school. Then had mutual friends and reconnected, dare I say, on Facebook. So when you guys met, what was his journey with the Defence Force? He'd been in since 2007 and he'd just come back from a deployment to East Timor. How did you guys sort of go out on a date and get to know each other? We didn't meet face to face until we had been chatting for a few months over a Facebook and text message basically. He had come back from his deployment to East Timor and then the tsunami had hit in Sumatra and he was called to go on that effort as well. And he was over there for six weeks in the end. So that was about the September, I think we started talking in the August. How did you go on your first date considering he was in Darwin and you were in Adelaide? Like the meeting point is <laughs> kind of pretty far, whichever way you look at it. We had just been chatting and then when he came down in the November, we had sort of organised to catch up for a coffee. He was down for about two weeks. So that weekend we caught up for a coffee and that was it. Then we were pretty much inseparable for the rest of the two weeks, basically. So when you were first chatting with each other, was the fact that he was all the way in Darwin a consideration and obviously also in the military? What was going through your mind before you'd even sort of... I was intrigued by what military life was all about and loved the fact that he had put up his hand to serve in something that was bigger than what he was and I was ready to be out of Adelaide as well I was actually on my way to Canada on a two-year work visa so we just were taking it as it came really but after we met in that November we were both pretty certain that we'd be together we just didn't really know how that was going to go I went up to Darwin for a couple of days before I flew out to Canada and then I went to Canada ended up only being six months and then came back home and we were together we knew that after Afghanistan was potentially on the cards for him, but it's not certain unless they're in the plane, in the air, basically. So we knew that was a potential that was going to come up. So we weren't making too many planes, but definitely knew we wanted to be with each other. I came back from Canada in the June. I just wasn't quite ready to be back in Adelaide. Found a uni degree that I was really keen on up in Darwin and moved up there. By that stage, how much actual time had you and Luke spent together before you actually moved in together? It doesn't make it sound that great, actually. Probably... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was convincing my parents that it wasn't rushed. But when you talk about actual time together, oh, maybe two months. And so you're moving yeah. from the other side of the country to live with this guy that you'd known since primary school. So, you know, you had that yeah. connection but really had only been seeing each other for two months because he was away and then you were away and then by the time you came back together. So how did that go moving in together after really only (laughs) seeing each other for two months? He'd never lived with a girlfriend or had a long-term girlfriend before and was living in a house with single guys so that, you know, it was quite an adjustment to what planning life with someone else was like. But we actually only had six weeks to do that before he found out he was being deployed. So it was a pretty quick learning curve, basically. 
but we both knew that we wanted to be doing it. So we just made it work. I think it's helped our communication for sure. You had to sort of get to know each other real quick before he went away again. Yeah, I'd been up in Darwin for, well, six weeks and we found out he was gone six weeks after that. We spent a few weeks down in Adelaide just saying goodbye to family and, and then he was gone. And then how long did he go to Afghanistan for? Nine months. Wow. So together for a couple of months and then he's gone for nine months. And so what did you do? Just focus on uni or how did you get through that time? Well, I had met one of my really good friends, Alicia. Luke was really good at connecting me with a couple of other army wives that he knew I'd get along with really well. And she was one of them. And we'd known each other for about six weeks and she was pregnant with their second. And we weren't sure whether her husband was going to get back from training in time. So it was basically, you're coming to the hospital with me to help me birth this child. Fast friends, yeah. So I was up there with her and because I'd had my uni degree that I was doing and I was really keen to be doing that, I just stayed up there, continued on with my uni. And I liked the fact that Darwin understood defence life. When I went to my uni lecturer and said, look, I've just found out my partner's deploying in three weeks. I'll be back when I'm back, but this is what we need to be doing. They were really accommodating with that. Whereas army life in Adelaide, is it's just not the same. I much preferred being in Darwin where people just understood what it meant. Even civilians understood what it meant. Was the communication fairly good while he was over there or how was that working? Yeah, he was based in Tarankout. Uh, he's a combat engineer. His section was part of finding the IEDs in the ground. So I think we would speak once a week or so. And we'd been writing emails since we first started talking a year before that. So it was quite a normal way for us to communicate anyway, which I think it actually really helped prepare us for deployment. Obviously, when I was in Adelaide and he was in Darwin or I was in Canada and he was in Darwin, there was no risk to life. <laughs> but, you know, it was good that we had that practice with communicating that way. How did you cope with the extra layer of worry because of his job and what he was doing over in Afghanistan? Mm, not great. Um, <laughs> at the time, that was one of the hardest things I'd sort of gone through, just the constant worry. And I remember waking up, you know, sort of fairly regularly during the night and I'd jump on Facebook because if comms were down, so Facebook was down, then we knew something had happened. We would also get text messages. So if there'd been a injury or a death, we would get a text message to say that there's been an incident, the next of kin have been notified. So basically, if it wasn't you, that you knew it wasn't your person. However, I also had by that stage, a bigger army family that were over there that I was also concerned about. I remember the first time I got that text message to say that someone had been injured. I was with my family in Adelaide and I just broke down. I think I fell on my hands and knees, just the realisation that this was actually real life and this was this was a huge possibility. Real danger and, and someone else has potentially lost a family member or a family member yeah. injured. And we went through that. There was two guys from Darwin who were killed on his deployment within 10 days of each other. So that was in the February. We'd seen each other for Rockall in the January. And then uh, Sapper Jamie Larkin was killed in the February as well as Corporal Richard Atkinson. So that was within 10 days. So, yeah, that definitely really hit home that this yeah. was dangerous business. Obviously, because it had become so real, you're then sitting back thinking, oh, who might be next? Yeah. And because of his role being on the ground and doing what he was doing, he's told me stories since he's been back of how close he was actually to coming to a, a particular um, IED that he thankfully missed by about 30 centimetres and then ended up dug up later and it was quite, it would have killed him. So he just didn't tell me those things when he was over there. <laughs> and so how did you live everyday life and actually focus on a uni degree with that sort of worry? 
I just knew that I needed to. And Alicia and I, the friend I was talking about before, we just sort of ended up doing everything together. We would joke that when the boys would come back, they wouldn't know what to do. I would just get the car seat out and then get one kid out and she'd get the other kid out and we'd just do wife <laughs> together. And she's like, this is going to be really hard when my husband comes back and I'm going to expect that he knows what to do with what you do, but he's not going to know that. So we just did it together and I worked a little bit and did my uni degree and spoke to the poor people in the Coles checkout when Alicia was away and uni wasn't on and I was very bored at home by myself. I'd go to Coles and they'd say to me, hey, how you going? And I'd just start blurting out everything because I hadn't had an adult to talk to for a while. I think I just knew that I needed to do it and, you know, as worried as I was, it wasn't going to change the outcome really. So it was just about trying to make the most of each day and the most of that contact with each other. and And had you had any thoughts while you were going through that first deployment of can I do this over and over again if we're going to be together forever? Yeah, I knew that he was really considering whether he wanted to have kids while he was in the army. He had watched some friends' children really struggle with, you know, their dad being away for all the training exercises. Darwin was a really busy unit, so they were away quite a lot. For me, as difficult as it was, I loved the community and the family that we created up there. I actually quite liked the idea of posting every three years, (laughs) something different. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we hadn't really thought that far ahead, but I had said to him before he left that I wasn't doing this. I think my exact words were, I'm not just doing this for shits and giggles. Like if I'm going to go through this deployment, basically that's it. You've got me forever. (laughs) So make your choice now. I I just didn't want to go through that to then think that it wouldn't work. When people ask me when it was happening, how do you do it? And I was like, well, there's one person I'd do it for and that's him. And this is his job and he loves it. And you just kind of do it, right? So once he got back from Afghanistan, what were his postings going to be after that? How long was he back in Darwin for before he went away again? And can you tell us a bit about what happened after that? Yeah, well, he didn't go away again. That was his last deployment. While he was on that deployment, he had what they thought was a suspected heart attack the day after Akka was killed. And so they flew him around and were doing stress tests with him. Uh, It didn't really make sense because they wanted him to run on a train for five kilometers meanwhile he'd been carrying a 30 kilo backpack for eight hours through the afghan mountains but anyway they discovered that what it actually was was an anxiety attack so when he came back they were looking at moving the engineering regiment down to adelaide and both of us are born and bred adelaide our parents actually live still five minutes apart from each other so he was really keen to get back to adelaide and i really wasn't (laughs) i wasn't quite ready to leave darwin i loved darwin i think you either love it or hate it and I definitely loved it. But because he was a Lance Corporal at that stage, he was promoted over in Afghanistan. We knew that there wasn't going to be very many opportunities for movement, like, you know, the higher ranks that you go. So we said we would move. So within August, September, we were down in Adelaide. So we posted down here. And then the Adelaide Regiment had gone, but he, whenever their next round was, I reckon it was, there must have been the year or so after to go back to Afghan. But he stayed home and helped back on base, which I think was beneficial he wasn't in a good place have you heard about our lots of love care packages an anonymous and free box of self-care goodies that can totally make a military spouse's day it's a way for friends and family to send an acknowledgement in the mail to a military spouse to let them know they're awesome and the military wife life community has their back pop over to the military wife life website after you finish listening to this episode of course and sign someone up for the lots of love box
after you got back from Afghanistan and obviously they worked out that he'd had an anxiety attack, what had to happen with that and his job in regards to treating the anxiety? How did they go about treating that? When he was over there, they didn't treat it. They sent him out back to work, basically. The guards had packed up his things thinking that was it. He was going home. And uh, after they finished the ramp ceremony for Jamie Larkin, Luke was sent back out to do his job in the exact place where Jamie was killed. So they didn't look at treating it. I don't know whether they actually had a diagnosis of anxiety at that point in time. They were still thinking, oh, it was might have been a heart thing, but we don't really know what it was. Basically, they had a five-star colonel from the US look him over and say that he was fine. So he came back with anxiety without it being treated. And was he yeah. worried about having more anxiety attacks? I don't think he even realised it was anxiety at that point in time. I was just more concerned how he was going to go being back out in that particular area in Afghanistan. And then also if they're finding bombs and he passes out, I just didn't want him to fall on one. As horrible as that sounds, yeah. I was like, that's not going to be great. And so while yeah. they were doing the testing, did they tell you that that's what they were doing or did he tell you? what Were you in the dark or you knew what was happening? I was in... Canada at the time because we just finished our holiday together in Rome and it was $400 return to get me to Vancouver to see my friends again and back. So I was over there at the point in time and I got the uh, private number call or the no caller ID call and I answered it. I was like, hey, babe. And I hear one of our mates go, hey, Kerry, it's Tank here. And Tank was his um, section commander. And when he called, I knew that something was terribly wrong. But in good army fashion, even though we were de facto at that point in time, they hadn't got the paperwork sorted. So they actually called his mum to let her know. And his mum knew that we were de facto and therefore assumed that I had received the phone call. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is why Tank called me himself to let me know what had happened with that he didn't have much information so I was in Canada and then I had the uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pierce call me to let me know what was going on and kind of keep me in the loop with what they were doing with him and where they were sending him and I think it was about three days before I got to have a conversation with Luke just to check in and see how he was going yeah what a long three days well at that point I was do I need to book a flight to Germany like I just didn't know what whether I would need to be getting home if he was going to be sent home I wanted to be back home and then dealing with the time zone difference and not being in Darwin I just really wanted to be back in Darwin you know our home together that was really difficult and then just got the phone call to say actually no we think he's all good he's gonna stay part of me was relieved because I knew that he would want to have seen his deployment out and one of my questions to the Louis Colonel was you know how's he tracking have you spoken to him is he going to be disappointed how is he feeling about the possibility of having to come home because it's just not something that they think about is going to happen there's only two ways you come home you either come home from the end of the deployment or you come home because you know you've been killed in action basically or really severely injured and so I knew that he would have been happy that he was going to be able to see out his deployment and be with his brothers over there and yeah it was just sitting and waiting on a bit more of an intense level than what I was doing previously and so then obviously you have that extra layer on top of the fact that he's you know looking for bombs you have that extra <laughs> layer of him having you didn't really know that it was anxiety they just said it wasn't a heart attack but it, it was something else but we don't know what it was know what it is so yeah. <laughs> for the rest of the time obviously you would have been even more on edge yeah after you know the next couple of months hadn't passed and nothing had happened like that again we both started to feel a bit more comfortable about how he was tracking physically but yeah it definitely didn't make it easy knowing that that could potentially happen again with not having any answers after seeing so many really good <laughs> medical specialists over there so you mentioned he came back from Afghanistan 
Afghanistan and then you mm. guys went to Adelaide. But before you went to Adelaide, did he have any follow-up tests or medical appointments to just definitely rule out everything else? At that point in time, he had come back and we had had a family information night about a month before the guys were meant to be coming back. And they were sort of talking to us about getting them back into society and what is sort of a normal, and I air quote that, you just can't see me, <laughs> to being back in Adelaide and what, you know, sort of if, if this high vigilance happens for more than a month, then maybe you need to start thinking about what's actually going on. So at that point in time when he had come back, he put his hand up and said, it was probably about a month after that something's wrong here. I'm just not feeling right and I need to go and see someone. And at that stage, he knew that it wasn't about physically about his heart, that there was more going on for him. And had you so noticed would, it in him as well? Yes. He would struggle driving. Adelaide is like a big country town, but he was definitely really conscious when there was cars quite close to him. Mm. If we were walking in a shopping centre or just walking down the street, he would put himself between me and anybody else, particularly male coming the other way. And I remember going to a shopping centre once and he I was just watching him and I said to him, where's the guy in the blue shirt? It's like, oh, he's just watching to that shop and the guy in the striped shirt took on to that shop and the guy, this, he just could pinpoint exactly where everybody was at. It's so, exhausting to be on all the time like that. And that's what it was like. It was, it was like he was still on like he was on in Afghan, but there was yeah. nothing that was ever going to stop that happening for him. So he recognised in himself that he wasn't right. And so what did yes. he do then? He was in Adelaide when he put his hand up and said something's not quite right and then started seeing the doctors on base to see what was going on. And what was so going was, on? That's when they discovered that he, at that stage, was having anxiety, um, which later led into depression. But the issue that we had was that because of what they thought was the trauma that occurred of him having this anxiety attack or suspected heart attack, because when he woke up from that, the first thing that the nurse said was, oh my goodness, you were dead. We've just done two rounds of CPR and you had no pulse for two minutes. So now every time he was having those same feelings and those same symptoms, his thought automatically went to he was going to die. But because the incident was the death was in regards to him and he hadn't witnessed it, that he wasn't able to be diagnosed with PTSD at that stage. So he started seeing psychologists and psychiatrists in regards to his anxiety and depression. And was he still able to do his job or what was happening at that stage at work? He was met downgraded at that point in time and was trying so desperately to get better so he could be met upgraded and do his job again in some capacity. Was any of this affecting your relationship or how was it going between you guys with all of this um, going on? It was going okay. I remember being just really confused about why one day he could go to the shops and everything was okay and then the next day I would look at him in the shops and it would be like he's about to throw up and pass out and he looked like he was just going to not cope with what's going on. You know, that would be the same shop at the same time, you know, same day type thing. I couldn't quite understand what was going on for him and what that actually meant. Sounds really silly now, but why there was no consistency to it. And therefore then I couldn't control it for him either. So I remember saying to him, like, because I hadn't been to any of his appointments with him. And I remember saying, I need to come with you and see your psychologist because I feel like I'm on the outside living 
living with you with this, but not knowing what it is or how to best manage it? Or am I triggering anything? Am I not triggering anything? It was just a bit of a blur for me. So it was definitely not an easy time in our relationship. And at that point, we were engaged and we were trying to organize our bridal gift registry. And we went to walk into the Maya Center to do that. And I looked at him and I could just tell. And I, I tried to do that, you know, tell me three things you can see, tell me three things you can smell, three things you can hear. And he was way too gone. So that was really difficult, like really for us both realizing the impact that it was having on our relationship because there I was doing this thing we were supposed to be doing together and he was home. So we could do it together, but he just didn't have the capacity and we just couldn't do anything easily anymore. And at any stage, did you have any second thoughts about getting married? I had seen a lady from VVCS and she had said to me around that point in time, you know, it's not too late. You don't need to go through with this. I didn't really appreciate that comment very much. This is session two and this is what you're saying to me. And Just get out now. This is, not, this is not what I'm saying that I want. I'm not saying that I want to leave at all. I just want to understand it and sort of work out, is there a place for me to be able to have my needs and wants and desires as well in this? It was hard because I wanted to be able to have that. And not that we had dated or spent a lot of time in each other's company before, but he was starting to change. We couldn't go out and do new things. We couldn't go out to rest we couldn't go out for coffee dates because he couldn't do it. So it was almost like it, it was a little bit easier when he was deployed because you have that mm. feeling of, oh, I miss him, I love him, I can't wait for him to be home. But then he yeah. comes home and he, like before your very eyes, turning into a different person and you're, you're wondering whether the old him will come back or whether you just need to accept yeah. that this is the new Luke. Yes. And how long is this going to ever change? They're always going to be like this. What's this actually going to look like? And please just take me back to the deployment. It definitely felt easier in that sense because I knew him and now I was just trying to work out who this person was and how this yeah. was going to work. And so you mentioned that you wanted to go along to his appointments did you end up mm. going along to one of the appointments? Yeah, he's always been really good. He won't necessarily invite me along, but if I ask, he's happy to make that happen. So probably one of the things I've been really grateful for is the fact that one, he put his hand up himself. It wasn't me watching this him struggle with him being in denial and to, to some capacity, him allowing me to be part of that journey with him to have a greater understanding of what was actually happening and how it was affecting our life. And what did you take from those appointments? I learned a lot about the brain and you know how that he was basically on high alert the whole time and there was nothing that was going to sort of release that whereas when he was in Afghanistan you know you're on high alert but then there might be gunfire which kind of releases that adrenaline rush that's why I was on high alert um, and that he just had no control over when he was in a heightened state like that. Did you get some coping strategies or how did you help manage it? He then was medicated which he didn't want to do because he just didn't want to be on medication for the rest of his life was basically his take on it. He said he was happy to be on medication but he just didn't want to necessarily go oh I'm medicated and that's all I'm going to do he wanted to really try and spend some time working through you know can I get myself to a certain point that I can function with or without medication or less amount of medication and we didn't know if he was going to be in the army for how much longer or then what he was going to do after that and he was fighting so hard to be medically upgraded so he could remain in the army but that didn't end up happening at this stage he's trying to do everything he can to stay in the army to get himself as well as he can going to a medical appointment seeing yeah. psychologists and on medication what was the point where it came to the decision that he would be medically discharged looking back he didn't have a chance to be able to stay in basically he had been told 
that we don't want broken soldiers, we want new soldiers. He was taken off the role at work and was put in a back office and wasn't tasked to anything. As much as he was fighting and trying really, really hard, it was never going to happen. So it was 2014 and we got a letter to say he had three months notice before his discharge date. And what was the day that you got that letter like? Oh, I was at work. He faxed it through to me. I just cried. I cried for knowing that he was going to be so disappointed to leave the army this way, knowing this is really what he wanted to be doing. And if he was going to finish it, he wanted to finish it on his terms. And he'd been trying so hard for that. And then I was also really concerned because been in the army since he was 19. What's he going to do now? And with his medical condition, what is he actually going to do? That was really scary. And the fight had only just begun. I didn't even realize. If you enjoyed part one of Kiri's podcast episode, you aren't going to want to miss a minute of part two of this inspiring story. Here is a snippet of what's coming up next week. He had said to me that he wanted a separation and that he thought that was the best thing possible and that there was nothing changing his mind. Thankfully, also along with that, he said that he was going to go back into hospital again, which is what I knew that he really needed. What was your feelings when he said he wanted to separate? When he told me... I obviously started to panic and I, you know, was really emotional, but knew that I also couldn't be very emotional because that was just going to shut him off even further than what he already was. We were at the point where I would go up to him and go to give him a hug and he's normally and is now a really affectionate person and he would just stand there with his arms by his side and I'd say to him, you know, if you put your arms around me, it's almost like you're giving me a hug. That was what our interactions had become. So as much as I knew things were terrible, I also knew that he had you know, never wanted to be separated or have a divorce. That's something that he felt really strongly about. So I went for a bit of a walk, pulled my eyes out around the walk and then came back and said, if you feel like you need to leave and look after you and go back to hospital, then I'll support that. But we're not having a separation. I'm not letting you make that decision when you're in this state. It's not fair on you or on me or on our family. I so hope you are able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarywifelife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 